We're not perfect. Some of us are not even close, like me. But if I can learn to accept myself, errors, faults, and all for who I am, I'm betting you can too. Even if you experience some truly weird and inappropriate stuff, which pretty much describes my childhood. My hometown of Plymouth, Michigan would have made a great location for a feature film. It was picture perfect. Kellogg's Park was the centerpiece. Manicured lawns and reddish brick paths coaxed visitors and dreamers to toss coins into a magnificent fountain at the center of the centerpiece. Arcing streams of water majestically surrounded the geyser in the fountain's middle. It was a place where wishes came true, and a place that supplied a steady stream of coins for my Pepsi and Chum Gum addictions. But there was another not-so-idyllic area of Plymouth. If you look closely on the other side of the park, you would have found a squat, dingy cinder block building with a small metal sign hanging over the entrance reading Downtown Wreck. This was my brother Jerry's place. All my childhood friends grew up in Plymouth. I grew up at the downtown wreck. Inside the windowless, dark gray walls of this nefarious pool hall, men traded factory paychecks and knockout punches to the face. The entrance featured a black metal door pockmarked with dents from skulls that had smashed into it. With only one way in and out, you were forced to pass a foul-smelling dumpster hidden from the street. It not only collected the rotting remains of the wreck, it was the receptacle for another nearby dive, the box bar. Oh, and the dumpster also served as temporary housing for losers who welched on bets. Fitting that all of this was situated at the dead end of a dead end alley. The wreck, as everyone called it, stayed cool the way caves stay cool. Didn't matter what time of year it was, dead of numbing winter or merciless middle of Michigan summer, it was always stalactite chill in the wreck. The decor, which is a term used loosely when describing the interior of this dump, featured three card tables flanked by dogs playing poker paintings, six eight-foot, three-quarter-inch pool tables, two 10-foot snooker tables, a 1964 Grand Slam baseball arcade pinball machine with actual metal players that moved around the base paths, a phone booth like the one Superman changed clothes in, and a bathroom with a couch-length urinal. Normally I wouldn't mention a toilet because every place has them, but this sucker was so massive it could accommodate two adult male heads for swirlings. Or just one if the receiver had a penchant for thrashing around rodeo style. One of my jobs was to keep the urinal filled with ice cubes to ease the stench. Didn't seem to do much good, but the ice did serve as a source of amusement and challenge. On a good day, I could bore a hole clean through it with just one good whiz. Thursday nights, the factory workers cashed their checks at the box bar. They would pound a few shots, then head over to the rack to try their luck at cards. Seemed every week, at least one guy would lose his entire paycheck before going home. We never gave out house loans, but you can be sure every one of those guys tried getting on my good side. It never worked. Wives of the losers would call and complain on Fridays. 
Funny how they never called when their man brought home three extra paychecks on Thursday. Every dog has its day. We never got shut down, mainly because Plymouth's top sergeant was one of the regulars and looked out for my brother and the men he called his friends. Lots of the guys got their asses whipped and dragged out the door, but nobody ever called the police. The wrecked men had a way of policing themselves. I was the only person under 19 allowed in. The regulars knew me as Little Fornwald. Nobody gave me grief. Friends and foes were jealous. I felt I was part of an exclusive club, and in many ways, I was. The wreck is where I learned the fine arts of swearing, fighting, hustling, deception, and getting even. I perfected many of these crafts before I was even four feet tall. Skills I could not exactly trot out in my soapier mouth, go to confession, pray the rosary, guilt-ridden Catholic home. You might be thinking, what the hell? Where were your parents? Well. Dad worked two jobs and was gone 16 hours a day, six days a week. My mother was funny as all get out, but clinically depressed. She was in and out of institutions for weeks and months at a time throughout my childhood. Truth be told, I raised myself. And in second grade, I made the decision to start working at my brother's pool hall, figuring it was safer than home. Two of my brothers were world-class pool hustlers. I idolized them. I heard snippets of stories over the years of various hustles on the road. Bernard was ambidextrous. Many said he was the best hustler in the state of Michigan and probably the best left-handed player in the country. He never shared his stories with me, but another brother once told me the reigning world eight ball champion traveled to Michigan to play my brother in a race to 14. Bernard won the lag for the break and then ran 14 straight racks of eight ball. The world champion never got a single shot. Lots of players would walk in from out of town wanting to play one of the foreign walls. One time when I was in sixth grade, a loudmouth said he wanted to play any foreign wall brave enough to play. Of course, he was cocking off when none of them were around. One of the men playing cards called the stranger out. Heck, you couldn't beat any of the foreign walls, including the little one behind the cash register. And then he said, tell you what I'll do. I'll back little foreign wall, $50 nine ball. I had played every day since second grade. I could probably beat 90% of the men walking into any bar. And I was ready for this joker. I beat him four straight games at $50 a game. He was pissed because I was laughing and getting into his head. Every man at the card tables stopped playing and surrounded the pool table. Let me see your money, friend, a regular said. That flustered the guy, but nobody cared. He flashed his wallet, fanning out two handfuls of hundreds. How about double or nothing, kid, the stranger said. You don't have to, little Fornwald. Take your money and quit, another regular advised. But I got greedy because I wanted Yamaha's new dirt bike. Sure, I said as I took the cue ball. My shot exploded and I made the nine ball on the break. 
That was 200 bucks earned in one shot. I had him down $400 now. How about another double or nothing? Last game, win or lose, he said. Your call, little Fornwald, a third regular said. Sure, I win and you owe me 800, I said. I broke but didn't make a ball. He made the first three shots in order before missing the four ball. I ran the next four shots. I had almost a straight shot the length of the table in the corner pocket. I decided to be a smart ass and take the nine cross table to the far left corner pocket. I nailed the shot directly at the pocket, but it snookered in front, leaving him a one inch shot to save 800. He made the shot and wiped sweat off himself as he paid for the time on the table. Now get the fuck out of here and never come back, one of the regulars said. That was the only time I played pool for that kind of money. My brothers got pissed when they heard I took the game. They put the word out not to let it happen again. Most of my time was spent sweeping or mopping floors, cleaning the damn bathroom, or other odd, demeaning jobs. One of which was guarding the refrigerator, so I could tell my brother Gerald how many sandwiches my older brother Bob ate. By third grade, I was running the cash register. It was a behemoth that made a ding noise when it opened, basically a 1940s alarm system. After cleaning tables and mopping the floor, I plopped my ass on a tall stool behind the counter, handing out pool balls, keeping track of time played, and siphoning the house 10% cut from every card table pot. To pass time, I drew cartoons and listened to conversations I planned to one day write about. And I perfected quarter twirling on a table using only one hand. If you think it's easy, hit pause and go try for yourself. But back to the 10%. For starters, the men hated forking over hard-earned cash to anyone, let alone some grinning punk kid. Early on in my rec career, they tried being sneaky. What they didn't realize is that I lived in a hypervigilant state. I loved to catch them trying to cheat me out of my cut. I could be in the middle of drawing a fat, hairy cyclops of a nun and sense the card table suspiciously getting quiet. The more overt signal was somebody cussing up a storm. Whatever diversionary tactic they chose, I would look over to the table and spot a pile of bills, then I'd mosey my way over. House rules stated that I do the counting. They had to keep their money-grubbing hands off the table. I was the fourth grade flashcard math champion, so I could count quickly and I didn't need anybody's help. If I counted $237 and change, I'd nab a 10 and a 20 and head for the cash register. The wreck rounded up, so I'd return with $6. Only once did somebody refuse to pay. Fucking Las Vegas doesn't take a 10% cut, bald bozo Frank said. I let it go and walked away. A few minutes later, my brother Jerry walks in and walks over to me and asks how everything's going. I explained the situation, curious how my non-street fighting brother might react. He sauntered over to the card table, said hi to the fellas, and spoke to Frank. Your day is fucking done, Frank. The pool room got quiet. Come here, I want to show you something. Motioning for Frank to follow my brother, Jerry, to the entrance. Jerry pointed to the door. Frank, walk out that door. At the end of the alley, make a left onto Ann Arbor Trail. Walk two fucking thousand miles to Las Vegas and don't come back. 
But the only real thorn in my side at the wreck was Ronnie Stanton. His mouth ran as fast as Olympic gold medalist Bob Hayes. He was a greasy, pompadour-sporting, two-bit hustler who was a dead ringer for the star of combat, Vic Morrow. Stanton enjoyed giving me grief, always twirling his damn toothpick in the corner of his mouth. Funny, though, when my pool-hustling brothers were around, Ronnie was a different dude. He jawed at me constantly from the pool table or the card tables. I think this may have been his strange way of showing he liked me. I never gave him the satisfaction of knowing he got under my skin. Ronnie was probably at the wreck more often than he was at home. As a result, he ate many a meal there. Mostly, it was the same thing, the Stuart Chuckwagon sandwich. Pre-made, unidentifiable slabs of meat topped with processed cheese shoved in a cellophane bag and heated in a special light bulb electric oven. It was not exactly a gourmet's delight, but for knuckleheads like Ronnie, who had no earthly idea how to cook, it was four-star dining. I'd be seated at my post behind the counter, wasting time, and he'd yell, little fucking Fornwall, what about you getting off that lazy ass of yours and make me one of those fine fucking chuck wagons? I'd smile to myself and take my sweet time walking over to the refrigerator. Hurry your ass up, you little fucker, he'd say. The standard way to make a chuck wagon was to pop the plastic bag with a fork and throw it into the oven. Turn the timer to three or four and close the top. A few minutes later, I would burn my hand extracting the bag. The regulars tipped if I removed the sandwich for them. They complained the plastic bag steamed the buns and made them soggy. I hated dealing with those damn sandwiches. Ronnie's chuck wagons, however, got my undivided chef's special attention. I hid the dead flies on a shelf below the Stewart's sandwich oven. Like new Harleys in a showroom, they were lined up in single file, row after row, waiting their call to duty. Each fly was carefully spaced out so I could flick them easily. Between third and ninth grades, I collected and stored fresh caught flies in a nifty Don'ts Pills tin. Selected classmates and neighborhood friends knew I had an open bounty on flies. I would trade one stick of chum gum for two dead flies, regardless of condition. I arranged new arrivals in the back row until their plump, shiny green bodies dulled and shriveled. I had to be a stickler on details like this if on the odd chance Ronnie were ever to do a visual check. Air-dried flies shriveled up just enough to look exactly like cracked peppercorns found in the oh-so-tasty chuck wagon. I worked quickly, fetching his sandwich out of the refrigerator. Lay that fucker out on a plate with a bag of chips and we'll see if there's a tip for you, Ronnie yelled. I tore open the sandwich bag and unfolded the chuck wagon onto a paper plate, exposing slices of the barely edible carnage. I pulled the cheese back with my right hand while holding the plate in my left and lowered the chuck wagon below the shelf, directly under the fly on the far right. I then flicked flies beneath the cheese layer using my very experienced baby finger on my right hand. With assembly line precision, I moved the sandwich to the left, dropping flies onto the sandwich along the journey. Henry Ford would have been proud. Seven of those little bastards on every Ronnie Stanton Chuck Wagon special. 
Hey, you better not be messing with my chuck wagon, you little fucker, he shouted. He inspected my work a few times over the years, but never caught on to the fact that seven of the ingredients on his special were not listed on the package label. Nobody makes these fucking chuck wagons better than you do, you little fucker, Ronnie would exclaim as he flipped me a quarter tip. You got that right, Ronnie, I said, pocketing the quarter and walking away. In the eight years I made him chuck wagons, I would guess he ate over a thousand flies. Nobody was the wiser. Not even my brothers knew until Ronnie died years later. Eventually, I moved on to other jobs in a career as a commercial director, art director, and artist. What I learned at the rec may not have translated well onto a resume, but in the terms of a real-life education, it didn't get much realer. And every time a fly lands on me, or buzzes annoyingly around my face, or lands on my food, I imagine it's probably Ronnie Stanton in his next iteration back to get some measure of revenge. Hey, little fucker, I got something for you. Hey, little fucker, I got something for you.